We've been focused on Guyana this season, and for good reason. It's on track to become the world's largest oil producer per capita in the next decade. But it's also important to note that what's happening in Guyana is pretty illustrative of what's happening all over the world right now. There is a global oil rush, and it's hitting the Caribbean region and Africa particularly hard. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation with reporter Jeff Goodell at Rolling Stone, who's just written a scorching piece on what's been happening in Namibia, particularly with respect to a company that seems to have claimed on paper that there are billions of barrels of oil on its land, but never actually proven that there's anything there. That never stopped them from drilling, though right next to a UNESCO World Heritage Site, no less. And those completely unnecessary exploratory wells have caused plenty of environmental damage. Jeff went to Namibia to figure out what the heck has been going on. He's going to talk us through all of it, how it fits in with what we've been seeing in Guyana, and how it all relates to the global oil rush after this quick break. Today's episode is sponsored by Ravensburger Puzzles. I don't think I've ever been so excited about an advertiser in my life because, yes, I am a giant puzzle nerd. And Ravensburger makes the best puzzles, as anyone who loves puzzles will tell you. I live in a place where we actually get pretty frequent power outages. (laughs) And, And when we do, I like to break out a puzzle. It's also a fun way to keep my kids off of their screens and do something sort of calm and meditative together. It's very satisfying when you snap that last piece into place. If you are looking for a calm and mindful exercise, I highly recommend checking out Ravensburger. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. You can start small with a a pretty straightforward puzzle and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. 
That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Does it make sense to you that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? How about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between these guys and your online activity. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Every site you visit, video you watch, message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you use ExpressVPN on your devices, the software hides your IP address. That's something that big tech uses to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. This has become sadly very important in my line of work. It's also why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, TechRadar, and a lot of other sites. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app, it's very easy to install. You tap a button and then you're protected. I like hardly even think about it anymore and it's just working away in the background on all my devices. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash drilled. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash drilled to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash drilled right now to learn more. My name is Jeff Goodell. I am a writer at Rolling Stone and the author of a number of books about energy and climate change. We're talking because you just wrote this massive feature about oil exploration in Namibia and a little bit in Botswana, in Africa in general. And I am fascinated by this story. So I I guess I wanted to know how you first started looking into this. What first popped onto your radar that made you go, oh, this is something worth looking into? Well, I got tipped off by Foundation, who told me that there was this drilling going on around the Okavango Delta, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. You know, and they are interested in life conservation and things. And like you and many journalists, we get pitched stuff all the time. And I was like, yeah, 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 it sounds great. But, you know, I got lots to do. And right. and so I, I kind of didn't think about it. And then then I was just sort of Googling around one day and thinking more about it and started to look into it a little bit. And it became really interesting to me very quickly because um, this company called um, Recon Africa, which was based in Vancouver, they were a kind of you know, a small kind of oil and gas exploration company. And, and there was some really good reporting that had been done by National Geographic that suggested that, you know, 
maybe this was not all up and up and maybe there was um, some other game being played here besides straightforward um, oil and gas drilling and exploration. And it just piqued my interest. And the more I looked into it, the more complex and fascinating it became. And I finally yeah. uh, pitched my editors and said, yes, let's go, go have a look. And that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I don't want to spoil the story for people because I want them to go and read it, but um, to the extent that you can share a little bit about what you found without, um, without ruining the story for people. Yeah. Can you walk us through what you found when, when you got on the ground in Namibia? Well, I think, you know, the first thing I should say is right before I left, I, um, I called this um, Harvard geologist named Paul Hoffman, who's a very, 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 one of the most sort of famous geologists in the world, as far as geologists are famous, uh, who, who is most known for kind of this idea of snowball earth, this idea that at one, several points in Earth's distant past, it was more or less covered with ice and it. It's a very controversial theory, but he he was the one who kind of proved it. And he proved it by studying the rocks in Namibia for about 40 years. And he he knows the rocks in Namibia the way, um, you know, most people know their children's faces or something. And um, I called him and he basically said, I explained the story to him and I was interested in drilling. Did he have any advice for me about traveling in Namibia and this and that? And he said, you know, there's no oil there. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, whatever they're saying, I know this place and there's basically no oil there. And I was like, well, then what are they doing? And he said, well, you know, one thing you're going to learn is that a lot of oil and gas company or companies are better at drilling into their investors' wallets than they are into the rocks in the ground. <laughs> yeah. And with that, I got on a plane and, and went to Namibia. And so my, try, my time there was about trying to understand what was going on. Um, if there was no oil there, um, then what were they doing? And if there was oil there, was this guy, Paul Hoffman, this man who understands Namibia better than anyone, was he completely wrong? And was that a um, uh, remarkable kind of discovery? They were Recon Africa was claiming there was 120 billion barrels of of oil that had been produced in this basin that they, that they had so-called discovered. Hmm. Um, and as you know, 120 billion is a pretty big number. And so that got all their investors in a tizzy. And yeah, I mean, that's, um, that would make it, you know, bigger than al almost any other oil field on earth, just to put it in context for people. Like they're like, Hey, we discovered the new Saudi Arabia and no one else knew it existed for exactly. the whole time. Yes. So the first thing I did when I got there is, you know, the, one of the things that makes this story different than a lot of other stories is it, the, where the, the, they, this company, Recon Africa, leased about uh, 9 million acres uh, of land in Botswana and Namibia. And a lot of it is very close to the Okavango Delta, um, which is this UNESCO World Heritage Site, which is a kind of um, pristine ecosystem that is uh, you know, renowned for the number of elephants that live and migrate through there for its wildlife population of lions and, you know, all the sort of big mammals that people pay a lot of money to go on safari to see. But it's also just this, you know, this 
kind of miraculous place, this delta where the water is, runs down out of the highlands of Angola and creates this unique ecosystem that is very, that is basically unpolluted and untouched. And then that water disappears into the Kalahari desert and just sort of vanishes. And it's this, mm. this amazing place. So, so the first thing I did was go see this amazing place, which I'd never been to before. And sure enough, mm. it was, you know, astonishing in its diversity of wildlife and in its sort of sublime beauty. And the notion that all this was going to get, you know, screwed up and polluted because of these, you know, wildcat uh, explorers um, who were drilling upstream of this was, you know, pretty shocking in the sense of like, what the hell are we doing? You know, what what is going on here? Um, so it wasn't just the climate aspects of it. It was also just this incredible wonderland of wildlife at, that was at risk. Right. And I think like, I think that um, there's a tendency for people to think, oh, well, if they're drilling, but there's not really any oil, then like no harm, no foul. Right. But that's very much not true. So can, can you uh, kind of talk through, you know, what impact does the drilling have irrespective of whether there is actually this large amount of oil to be tapped there? Right. I mean, obviously, if if there were 120 billion barrels of oil there, it would it would turn into, you know, um, you know, it, it would uh, there would be drilling everywhere and it would turn into, you know, um, a, a kind of environmental nightmare. But you're right. A lot of people think, oh, the, so there, what's the harm? They were exploring for oil. But no big deal. They didn't they didn't find it. And so who cares? Um, well, it matters a lot because um, an ecosystem like the Okavango Delta is very fragile and it's all built around this sort of flow of water. And, and as even drilling these um, four or five wells that they have drilled there, you know, they're using um, drilling muds that have God knows what kind of chemicals in them. They're pumping up water from below that has all kinds of uh, chemicals in it that are not mixed in the surface waters. They're cutting um, roads through these pristine areas changing wildlife migration patterns, you know, and then there's the whole sort of economy of drillers and um, kind of get rich quick people who, you know, invade this area um, trying to exploit this. And so it's like, you know, um, even, even this level of, of modest exploration in a pristine place like that has profound implications. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this company that is exploring in, in Namibia? Cause I found that really interesting too. Again, I think like a lot of people think, Oh, it's just the oil majors doing this, stuff. but this is a pretty small, pretty new company um, that has kind of pulled off something that's, that's uh, oh, sort of shocking, I would say. <laughs> You know, that they've that they've managed to convince so many people to believe in this projection. Like it's one thing if you know Exxon or Shell says there's 120 billion barrels of oil somewhere, but this this is not one of those companies. No, it's not. It's basically you know a handful of Vancouver mining financiers um, headed by this guy named Craig Steinke, who um, is a Canadian. Um, 
And, you know, he and, and some of the other people, guys, they are all guys and they're all like, you know, middle-aged white guys, basically, um, you know, uh, made a little bit of money in uh, fracking in the Permian Basin and in, in parts of Canada and, and are, have basically spent the last 10 years trying to kind of export fracking around the world, basically. And, you know, they fracking is a, you know, North American uh, invention that was sort of, you know, exploited here. And these guys figure out, oh, well, we can do that in other places. So they've trotted around to Mexico and France and Poland and other places trying to um, frack uh, in, in basins there. And they've been basically shut down um, in all of those places or else um, the, the, the gas fields turned out to be dry or, or the gas too difficult to get for whatever reasons. But they've perfected this idea of, of um, you know, hyping up the possibility of these discoveries and then selling, you know, creating a corporation that they then um, put on the Vancouver Stock Exchange or and, and some other um, small exchanges and, and hype up um, investors, um, retail investors on who are on boards, like on Reddit and places like that. And they get a lot of money invested in this by hyping up the possibility of, you know, an enormous find in this case in um, Namibia and Botswana. So it really is just, I mean, really it, it's a handful of people. Um, when I was in Namibia, I, I went to the uh, company headquarters, you know, it was like, well, okay, so Recon Africa has got this operation that I'm reporting about. It's this drilling, high profile drilling operation. I figured they would have a building, a like an office, a, you know, there would be some kind of establishment. And it was basically this like rented little office at the end of this empty hallway where one guy was sitting in a chair with like Office Depot kind of steel furniture who was in charge of their operations there. And I went in and, you know, said hello and told him who I was. And I was from Rolling Stone and, and you know, I'd like to go look at the drill sites. And he was at first really friendly to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it was really sweet. And like, he's like, Oh, great. Welcome to Namibia and all that. And then he said, okay, we'll arrange this. Let me, let me um, call me back in a couple of, a couple of hours and we'll set it up. And I left and called him a couple of hours and he was immediately very gruff and like, no, we're not, you, you know, no, no drill visits. Sorry. We're, we're not cooperating and hung up the phone on me. He'd obviously checked in with somebody and like, no, we're not letting any reporters anywhere near this. Um, but that's the kind of operation it is. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not a big company. It's like four guys, you know, who have corralled a bunch of investors, have some money, bought a drilling rig and are punching holes in Namibia. Hmm. It's wild. It's just, it's wild that, um, that that's like a thing that you can do. Um. <laughs> and make a lot of money at it. Yeah, I make a lot of money out of, at it, even if there's nothing coming out of those wells. Um, have they, um, what's kind of the status of, of this project right now? Well, they've, you know, they've drilled um, three or four exploratory wells. They haven't really, they, they claim to have found what they call a working petroleum system, but 
Um, all of the petroleum engineers I've talked to who've looked at their data say that it's not a working petroleum system. Uh, their stock price is, you know, under a dollar and has been under a dollar for a long time. Um, you know, it was up around uh, seven or eight, you know, I think even nine dollars for a while a, a year ago, uh, which was when all of the insiders cashed out. Um, you know, this company was worth at a certain point something like a market cap of like $2 billion, um, even though, you know, they'd never found any oil and their office was nothing more than a, you know, steel chair in a, in a lonely little building um, in Rindu, Namibia. Um, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. They, they looks like they have enough operating cash to get a, to go through another quarter or two, but um, a lot of the main investors have already moved on to other companies uh, and even the, the key player, Craig Steinke, who is the sort of man behind this, um, he's moved on. Um, he's involved in some other companies. So I basically think they're going to fade away. I think that, um, you know, they're just going to vanish in this sort of petroleum haze. I think that after uh, several years of promising and promising and promising, I, I think even there, you know, cult-like investors are are losing patience with them. And, you know, they've been talking about it, you know, a joint venture, somebody, one of the big oil majors coming in and, and um, you know, buying them out or, or buying out a portion of their operation, and which would certainly happen if, if there was 120 billion barrels of oil. Sure. Yeah. They would have, they would be <laughs> in pretty good shape. But, um the fact that nobody has after all this time um, is pretty good evidence that even um, insiders uh, don't believe what they're selling. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, is there any sense that, that they have been able to, for some period of time, at least kind of use the discoveries of oil in the Southern part of Namibia, where it shares a border with South Africa? Um, yeah. Do you think that they've been, they've been kind of, Using that to, you know, convince people that, oh, yeah, there's oil and gas up here, too. Oh, totally. Well, yeah, they're totally using yeah. that. And also, you know, Shell has been made a couple, there's been a couple of big offshore discoveries in Namibia also. You know, right. Namibia, for a long time, had thought they had no oil. There no no gas. They were not, they, you know, Angola to the north, you know, right. has lots. Um, and they just thought this was, you know, something that, you know, was not available to them uh, mm. to develop. And then a couple of these big, a couple of these big offshore uh, discoveries came on, which do seem real. Um, and then the, the, some other discoveries in the Southern part of the country. But, you know, Africa, as you know, is at this sort of turning point, right? Of right. like, are they right. going to develop in this old, like, you know, 19th century, you know, resource curse kind of um, development path, or are they going to move in a new direction? And I think Namibia is like really at the kind of fulcrum of that decision. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about that because I feel like Namibia is in this really interesting place. It does, it reminds me a lot of Diana, which we've been looking at um, a lot the last year or so um, in that Namibia also kind of has this, you know, reputation as like a, a real leader in conservation and doing so much around wildlife preservation and all of these things. And now they're at the precipice of maybe becoming 
a big oil and gas producer. And I'm, I'm curious about what you found in terms of what, I don't know, what people think about it there, how the government is reacting, how people on the ground think about it. Um, I had someone, I talked to someone just the other day who said, you know, for a long time, folks in global South countries thought about climate change as a global North problem, like a problem that was created by the global North and should be solved by it, which is not necessarily untrue, but unfortunately everybody is um, going to be impacted by it too, right? In these countries, you know, more than, than most. So yeah, I'm, I'm just curious what you saw in terms of people kind of grappling with all of those things at once. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think it's a really, really important question. And I think probably maybe one of the most sort of um, important kind of questions in the whole energy climate debate that's happening in the world right now. And you know, it's at yeah. the center of the loss and damage conversations that are happening, you know, with the IPCC and this question of what does the global north owe the global south and and because you know obviously we the global north have created this problem of climate change we're the ones who have spent you know 100 years dumping co2 into the atmosphere and as you chronicled better than anybody with oil majors like exxon mobil knowing what they were doing and you know there's no question about who's responsible for this right right and and you know when you travel in in, when I traveled in Namibia and Botswana, you know, I mean, energy poverty is very real. I mean, you know, it's really important in in countries in Namibia and Botswana for more people to get access to energy for all kinds of um, very obvious reasons. And, you know, there's a legitimate argument to be made that, look, you know, that, that I even in a meeting with the um, Namibia's uh, uh drilling, um, uh, the head of their sort of drilling operations oversight agency, um, said to me basically is look, you guys, you meaning America have, look what you've done, you know, you drilled everything and, you know, look what's going on now. We just okay drilling in, in the Willow project in, in Alaska, look at what we're doing in the Gulf. I mean, like you have no right to tell us like, not to drill, you know, you, you have no moral standing here. Right. So like that, you stop first, you know, right. <laughs> the vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really, and that's really true. I mean, yep. it's really true. I mean, yeah. there's, we, we do have no moral standing to right. tell, to, to come in there and say, you know, shame on you. However, what's very powerful that's happening there. And what I encountered on the ground was a lot of, you know, African activists, African sort of, you know, new energy thinkers who are saying, look, forget like what, you know, people in the U.S. want us to do or care. It's like for our own good, you know, we need to go on a different path because the future is not oil and gas. These things are going to turn out to be stranded assets. They're going to screw up our country. They're going to pollute. They're going to do all the things that we can see has happened to the U.S. and to other countries who have gone down the path of fossil fuel development, we're smarter than that. The advantages is to go on this new and different path. And Namibia is a great example because Namibia's solar resource, for example, is just phenomenal. I mean, it's um, better than California or Nevada. I mean, it's really they have this, the, the, the real gold mine or the real 120 billion barrels of oil in Namibia is not in the ground. It's in the, it's in the sun. And the possibilities of that are huge. And they're also doing things, very innovative things, like 
uh, green hydrogen development that they have a, a big project going on that is, I think it's $9 billion or something of investment um, that is very progressive and, um, you know, a kind of step towards this sort of new energy economy also. So they're at this sort of, you know, fulcrum of this, of this change. But, but one of the things the Recon Africa story shows is, you know, is the ability of the oil and gas uh, industry world players to, you know, access political officials to, to get okays to do things. They know how to pull the levers and, you know, um, they know how to, you know, pay off the right people and, you know, get the development going, even in ways that, you know, even if it's not the, the sort of smartest path or the most democratic path or the one that, most people in the country want, they know how to get it done, which is the same story as you saw in Guyana and we see in America. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, there's this, this dual problem, which you pointed to before of like, it's not just the long-term potential impacts around climate, but also the near-term impacts of, you know, um, <clears throat> air and water pollution and the potential for oil spills and all that kind of thing too. Did, um, did you get like, did you get a sense of how well or not the, the Namibian government is positioned to, to actually like regulate an oil and gas industry? No, I mean, my sense is that, you know, um, they, they are, you know, children in a sandbox in dealing with these, you know, big experienced oil and gas players, even like Recon Africa. I mean, Recon Africa is, you know, in the classic way, kind of trying to exploit this in a way. And they're talking about how, you know, they are, um, they, they talk about how they're drilling mud and their drilling fluids are a hundred percent organic, right? As if it's like Gwyneth Paltrow. Developed or something, you know? It's like, <laughs> It's hilarious, you know? Wow. <laughs> Drilling mud or a mask. Um. <laughs> yeah. know, right? Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Um, is there a sense, like in, in Guyana, there's very much this idea of like, oh, well, you know, oil and gas is going to make us rich and, you know, solve all of our development financing problems and in a very big way it actually gets talked about all the time there that like this oil money is going to pay for climate adaptation which is such a like really clear example of you know what happens when the global north does not step up and do you know <laughs> what it should on on climate it's like okay now we've kind of abandoned these countries to rely on oil companies to pay for climate adaptation um and and the trade-off is you know more drilling and, and all of that so anyway i don't know it, like is that something that you saw in namibia as well where it's like well this might be a problem but it'll bring in money and we need that money to, to deal with all of these other things yeah i mean that's a, clearly a big part of the sort of um pitch that a company like recon africa makes although in this case they don't really talk that much at least that I saw uh, about climate related uh, adaptation and money. It's more just like, you know, economic development, you know, it's like, we're going to bring jobs to these poor people. We're going to, you know, provide clean drinking water. You know, we are a 
you know, um, experienced professionals. We do this right. We're not a fly by night organization. You know, we care about Namibia, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're very good at, you know, pitching this as the path for economic prosperity and growth. Right. And then you go there and you walk around and you talk to people in the villages and things around there. And, and yes, they've drilled a couple of drinking wells that cost them two or $3,000. And that has helped a couple of you know the villages. And I visited some of these wells and people were happy that they were there. Um, but it's like, you know, buying the local soccer team, new shirts or something. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it they know how to do, build up this kind of goodwill at a very cheap cost. And you ask them about, you know, uh, and I asked people about, you know, employment and jobs and, you know, they would hire someone to like hold the flag on a dirt road for a day or two and pay them less than a dollar or something. And then that would be the end of it. And, you know, clearly all of this drilling stuff uh, is, you know, Everything there was Halliburton. I mean, this is all imported stuff, imported engineers, the the actual, you know, job possibilities for local people there are very, very small. You know, the oil contracts, most of the money is, you know, going out of the country. The money that's not going into the hands of sort of corrupt officials is going mm-hmm. out of the country. You know, this is, it's the, it's a very transparent game that anybody like you who has looked at this for a long time knows exactly how it's played and they're really experts at it and they're really good at it and um you know they have that playbook down yeah yeah um what about sort of civil society groups in namibia so you know like nonprofits and foundations but also journalism um you know, government watchdog groups, things like that. Are, are any of those folks kind of starting to to look at this stuff more critically? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, first of all, Namibia has some really good journalism. They, uh, the, the paper, The Namibian, has done some really good um, coverage of uh, Recon Africa and of the problems with, with drilling um, in these fragile areas. So they do have that. They, the... Um, they are building, there is a growing, um, you know, activist community, um, Fridays for the Future, other organizations like that have a real presence. Um, one of the things that, you know, really caught my eye in, in first um, beginning to explore this story and deciding to actually go there and write about it was seeing some video of some of the sort of community meetings Um where local activists were challenging some of Recon's um, officials who would come in and, you know, describe this, these drilling projects to them. And, and the local activists really kind of got up in arms about it and really challenged them. And I thought, oh, wow, this is really interesting. There's a lot of pushback here. That's um, really interesting. Is the, like, is the, is the government, um, yeah, like how is the government sort of supportive of that or not, or, you know, more on the side of the oil companies or, or sort of neutral what's what's the like relationship like there yeah well i mean it's it's complex you know um the the uh, namibian um mining minister who i um a guy named tom Awendo who um had a kind of community meeting 
in uh, Rundu, Namibia, which is the sort of largest town near the drilling sites, I was there when he had this community meeting and I attended it. And, and you know, he's a very smart guy, um, very sophisticated, um, uh, you know, but very clearly like, if there's oil here, we're going to develop it. This is our rights. You know, we have um, a right to develop our resources. Um, you know, we want to do this and we want, and, you know, we want to do this right. So they're, they're kind of progressive in that sense. Right. Um, you know, this is, they, the, the question is, is will that, would that actually happen? What would doing it right mean in a place like that? And, you know, it's like, can you drill in, you know, for oil and gas the right way in Yosemite Valley? I mean, no. I mean, you can't, right? There's if you're going to drill for oil and gas in Yosemite Valley, it doesn't. There's no right or wrong way. It's a disaster any way you look at it, right? And so, same kind of thing with the Okavango Delta. It's like there's no right or wrong way to drill here. You just this should this should not this should not be happening, right? I mean, if you value this this ecosystem and this this planet the way that a lot of people do. So, so I think that, you know, what's interesting in this story is that, you know, by choosing to drill in this or very close to this fragile area, they, they really kind of um, kicked off a kind of um, attention and got people like me and activists and others to say, hey, what the hell are you doing? What is going on here um, that I think they regret? Because I think that they would like this to have just gone through in a much quieter way. And there certainly is other drilling and exploration going on in Namibia that I'm not writing about and you've probably never heard of and I've probably never heard of. And, you know, that is going on quietly under the radar. But these guys were bold and stupid and they just arrogant and just thought, oh, what the hell? We're going to drill right next to the Okamango Delta. And lo and behold, people don't like that, including a lot of Namibians who are you know, we're marching in the streets and holding up flags. But we know what's really interesting too, is that you really feel, or I really felt when I was there compared to covering a similar kind of, you know, meetings and activism in the U S is fear. Um, there's a real fear there of, mm. um, what the oil companies could do to them. There was a lot of, mm -hmm. I talked to a number of activists who said, you know, I'm talking to you, but, you know, if I disappear next week, you know, you need to know, you know, who did this or who's, who was where to look first kind of thing. Right. And so you really feel the kind of courage of speaking out um, there in a way that, you know, I don't really feel when I cover similar kinds of events here in the U S or mm -hmm. in Western Europe or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you talking to me about it more. It's a great story. We will link to it in the show notes and send everybody over to read it. And um, definitely we'll be following to see what, what becomes of Recon Africa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think they're, they're like a little soap bubble that's going to like pop, you know, right really, really soon here. I don't think they're going to be around for long, but yeah. you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, looking forward to, to seeing whatever you do next. Thank you, Amy. That's it for this time. Next week, we are back in Guyana for the final episode of this season. Don't 
miss it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>